Hey, everybody. It is Monday, January 22nd. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwinunu. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, we took one of our regular surveys over on the gram, and uh, some recent numbers came out. We talked about them on the podcast about how many books Americans read. And so we posed the question to our Instagram following. Uh, if you recall, if you read 50 or more books in America last year, you were in the top 1% of readers in America. If the Mo News community is to be believed, about 20%, one out of five Mo News community members read 50 or more books last year. So 20% of our community is in the top 1%. Now, I believe it. You guys are very smart people. Some people commented, uh, people are lying about how many books they read. I'm like, no, no, no. I think this is a sign of how educated and smart uh, our community is. So kudos to all of you. 20%, one out of five of you is in the top 1% of readers in America. I totally believe it because... Well, first of all, I think it helps that we said that audiobooks count. And I did yes. get a lot of feedback from people. They said that they really appreciated that because that's how they quote unquote read and they consider it reading. So I totally buy it. Yeah. And I'm also not totally surprised because think about what Mo News is, right? It's supposed to be a community. It's we're we're trying to do news smarter. Mm-hmm. We're breaking stories down. We're verifying sources. It doesn't surprise me that an audience that would be attracted to this podcast and to to the Instagram account are readers. That doesn't surprise yeah. me at all. Yeah. So kudos to all of you. Uh, you're the smartest people that I know. And uh, we're <laughs> smarter now, than uh, me, starting... by the way. <laughs> I'm not a top one percenter. Jill didn't read 50 books last year. Jill read uh, seven million news articles, though. So if you add those up. <laughs> um, but anyway, we're now in the fourth week of 2024. So uh, hopefully you're tracking to your expectations, to your goals this year. Because again, we're not here to judge anybody. If you read two books, you read one book, you read 50 books. It's all about doing what you can in the time that you have uh, to uh, better inform yourself about what's going on in the world. All right, with that, let's get to some news here and some big political news. Ron DeSantis drops out, leaving just Nikki Haley and Donald Trump in the GOP presidential race. We'll talk about what that means just one day ahead of the New Hampshire primary. Kite Baby, an infant clothing brand under fire for how it treated an employee who was a new mom. And it's leading to a bigger discussion about the lack of paid maternity leave in the United States. Meanwhile, the U.S. and other countries are trying to get Israel and Hamas to the table to end the war and return the hostages and put the Palestinians on a path to an independent state. And it comes as we continue to watch the violence escalate across the region. Back here in the U.S., extreme weather kills more than 90 Americans. We're going to take a look at the forecast. Japan joining an exclusive group of countries to land on the moon. We talk about why the moon is about to get crowded in the next few years. And even though we were told forever to put our arms up or our hands up in the air and wave them around like we just don't care. Well, Gen Z now telling millennials to put their hands down. You hear that, Jill? Mosh, it's something I have no control over. If I'm on the dance floor, my hands are up. Jill, the orders have been since the 90s to put our hands in the air. I don't (laughs) think that uh, we can control ourselves at this time. Um, And Mosh has on this day in history. A little John Lennon, a little Adele. We got some uh, music history uh, for you on this day. All right, let's start with that big political news. And then there were two. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out of the 2024 presidential race on Sunday, just two days before the New Hampshire primary. 
DeSantis was never really competitive in the state. He was polling in single digits far behind Donald Trump and Nikki Haley after his disappointing finish in the Iowa caucus, where he had effectively bet it all. His campaign had been running on fumes for the past week. In a video announcing his campaign pause, DeSantis on Sunday said that he tried his best, but he saw that he did not have a path to victory. And he went ahead and endorsed former President Trump. Here's a bit of what he had to say. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance, and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. Well, I've had disagreements with Donald Trump, such as on the coronavirus pandemic and his elevation of Anthony Fauci. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. So you heard there he made a point there of not just endorsing Trump, but slamming Nikki Haley. He's always been much more closely aligned with Trump. Uh, He also knows that making peace with Trump right now uh, will ideally at some point allow the two to resolve themselves, potentially have him considered for VP uh, and, of course, put him in the leading slot as far as he's concerned, he's only 45 years old, to a run in 2028 since uh, Trump would be term limited to just one term. So current polls put Trump at 50 percent in New Hampshire. Haley is in the mid 30s and DeSantis is at 6 percent. The DeSantis vote could help Trump increase his margin. Once flush with cash and projecting bravado, DeSantis was considered the heir apparent to Trump and the former president's most formidable challenger when he joined the race back in May. DeSantis has expressed regret over his early campaign media strategy, where he ignored the mainstream media and only focused on right-wing outlets. His operation was racked by internal turmoil, including fights over messaging and strategy, multiple leadership shakeups, and massive overspending on things like private planes. Yeah, it was just a mess, this entire campaign for seven months. He basically peaked the day that he declared a Jill, and then it's been all downhill for him. The basic problem he had was voters didn't like him once they got to know him. It's a problem you see with many presidential candidates. You can throw out there a lot of strategy, a lot of this. At the end of the day, you know, one of the defenses of Iowa and New Hampshire going first is they're small states. They allow average voters uh, to meet with candidates, see them up close. Uh, and there was a lot of hype around DeSantis uh, in the months leading up to him getting in. Remember, he blew out the Florida governor's reelection uh, last November. So just about 14 months ago, at a time where the rest of the Republicans in the country didn't do well, uh, Trump was sort of at the bottom People were shocked he was running again, uh, criticized within the conservative community. And so everyone was looking at DeSantis. He finally gets in and voters are like, yeah, I don't I'm not connecting with him. And it's something, you know, there's been examples of this. Most recently, uh, Mike Bloomberg and Kamala Harris in 2020 were uh, candidates who were touted, Mike Bloomberg in particular. Um, And then once voters got to meet them, they're like, "Mm, not for me. And they didn't do well um, in the actual election. One of the issues you also had with DeSantis here is he ran as a culture warrior. Woke, 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 hardcore MAGA. And at times it came across as a bit disingenuous. Uh, He actually spent the first couple of years as governor. And we did this in our deep dive over on Mo News Premium, where he was actually working with Democrats. And then he flips around COVID time and thinks, you know, he's going to go hard right. He goes to the right of President Trump, out trumping Trump, so to speak. And it just didn't work. It was very much kind of the Ted Cruz strategy from 2016. Is there enough room on the right of Trump? Well, two out of two times now, there has not been. 
it was an interesting strategy that that decided to be his messaging because arguably Florida handled COVID people would say better than the rest of the country. They opened up quicker. As we've seen, there's been an exodus of people leaving states like New York and going to Florida. So he had a lot of things that he could have run on that did not necessarily involve the culture wars. Yeah. And and ultimately, there, it was divisive. And his bigger problem, though, was that it's still Trump's party and they weren't ready for Trump, too, because Trump won is still in the race and Trump won still looks competitive. And people said, we're going to go with the real thing. So that was the overlap that he had. That was the trouble that he had there. Um, and so this wasn't surprising necessarily on Sunday. Quote my friend Peter Hamby. He's a political reporter over at uh, Puck News. He said that DeSantis has been doing the walk of shame basically since Iowa. He blew it all on Iowa, lost by 30 points, hasn't run ads in a week, uh, Ran, went to a couple events. It was clear that uh, he wasn't in this for the long haul, was sort of just going through the motions for a couple of days. So DeSantis, though, has a long future. He's, again, 45 years old. In today's politics, that means he can run for president for the next 30 plus years. <laughs> he's got to finish his second term as governor. He's a baby. Yes, he's a child compared to these. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he literally could be the child of the two men that we think are the nominees, Biden and Trump. So uh, it'll be interesting. And, you know, obviously he wouldn't make this comparison, but I'll make it. Hillary Clinton, 2008 versus 2016. The knock on her in 2008 when she lost to Obama for the nomination was she didn't have her voice right. She was inauthentic to who she was. Whereas in 2016, she ran as herself against Bernie Sanders and was more successful that time around. The question is, does DeSantis learn lessons um, from 2024 and whether he runs in 2028, 2032? I mean, who knows? Um, does he learn the lessons and try to run as kind of the more authentic version of himself? With that said, with DeSantis gone now, it obviously comes down to Haley and Trump. We'll do a, a whole preview tomorrow. But the bottom line is this right now. Trump appears to be up between 12 and 15 points over Haley with the DeSantis uh, endorsement and his voters very much likely almost all going to Trump. That could be a 20-point advantage. She's in a, a very difficult spot going into New Hampshire right now. The party appears to have consolidated around Trump. The vast majority of Republicans support Trump. Uh, there's a major lead among men, Trump. They split women right now 50-50. Uh, and she has a slight advantage among independents. The problem is that Republicans, the core Republicans of the party, who make up the vast majority of voters, are all very much in Trump's camp right now. And so uh, Haley has pressed on in over the weekend. She was very much questioning Trump's mental fitness and age. Uh, he a couple times confused her for Nancy Pelosi. He's been confusing Biden for Obama in recent uh, speeches. And he's like, well, you can't tell the difference between any of them. And she's like, maybe you're not all there. And then Trump over the weekend was like, no, I've taken cognitive tests that are meant, by the way, for people with dementia. And he's like, I've passed the cognitive. I'm great on the cognitive. That's what that's <laughs> essentially what the back and forth was between Haley and Trump this weekend. Again, the Trump people are basically like, we're going to be done with this um, as of Tuesday into South Carolina. Uh, the Haley people very much uh, hoping that now that it's down to two, is it possible to still take him out? She very much needs a lot of luck. Uh, and a lot of a big surprise on Tuesday if she wants to make that happen. OK, now to a story that's gotten a lot of reaction on our Instagram account and has reopened the debate about the lack of government mandated maternity leave in this country. The owner of the Dallas based baby clothing brand Kite Baby has apologized twice now over the weekend after an employee was denied a work from home option after adopting a 22 week old premature baby. That employee, Marissa Hughes, had asked to work from a neonatal unit that she could be close to her baby, who was fighting for his life after he was born prematurely at 22 weeks. The baby is at a hospital in El Paso, a nine-hour drive from her Dallas home. 
So her request was denied since her role is to work in the company's photography studio, coordinating a lot of things on site. The company gave her two weeks and ultimately told Hughes that if she didn't return to work after those two weeks, she would essentially be forfeiting her job. Hughes decided to stay with her baby as he fights for his life in the NICU. The company was met with swift backlash over the move, and the CEO, Ying Lu, issued two video apologies after some customers threatened a boycott. In the first video, which was just over a minute, she apologized to Hughes and said that they would assess their parental leave policies. But that first apology got really harsh reviews on TikTok, where people said that it sounded like she was rehearsed and inauthentic. Take a listen. Baby prides itself in being a family-oriented company. We treat biological and non-biological parents equally. Through both my personal and professional experiences, I have the utmost respect for babies, families, and the adoption community. However, such respect and good intentions were not fully communicated to Marissa in the discussion of her parental leave. So then dozens of moms made videos saying that they were once loyal Kite customers, but would now stop buying from the company that they were going to boycott. Yeah. So then what does Lou do? She makes another video. A few hours later, she uh, tapes a second apology video. This one about four minutes on TikTok. Here's a bit of that second apology. I just posted a official apology on TikTok and the comments were right. It was scripted. I memorized it. I I just basically just read it. It wasn't sincere. And I've decided to go off script and just tell you exactly what happened. I've been thinking about what went wrong. And I think sincerely what went wrong was how we treated Marissa. And I was the one that made the decision to veto her request to go remote. Um, while she has to stay in NICU to take care of her adopted uh, baby. And when I think back, this was a terrible decision. I was insensitive, selfish, and was only focused on the fact that her job was um, had always been done on site. So Jill, she admits there she was inauthentic. And so the reviews for this second video, not much better than the first one, really. She says she understands people think she's doing this just to save her company. Doesn't actually deny that portion of it. Anyway, the second one comes across as very awkward as well. We should note Lou is not just the CEO. She's the founder of the company, uh, has five children. One had eczema so that inspired her to make clothes and sleep sacks uh, out of bamboo material. Uh, I should mention, Jill, Kite Baby actually came highly recommended to us as we were purchasing things uh, for Olivia. So I only watched the second video that you had posted yeah. on Instagram. And I thought that she did seem sincere. And Moshe, I don't know if it's my old age and I'm just becoming a softie. <laughs> but if people apologize and seem sincere about it, I tend to accept it. And I kind of feel like she realized she made a mistake. And I do think that this conversation is sparking a lot of, of good that could potentially come from this controversy. Yeah, you know, we should note that Hughes's role at Kite Baby involved taking care of everything in studio, from the models to the wardrobes to the sets for the photo shoots, marketing initiative. So, uh, you know, I guess from the CEO's perspective, uh, she felt like, well, how can you do your job remotely? At the same time, she'd adopted this child, was born in the NICU, it's a 22 weeks, this is going to be a long slog. She lives in Dallas, but the baby was born in El Paso, a nine-hour drive. 
So how, you know, could she expect her to drive back and forth nine hours each way? And, you know, the unfortunate thing for uh, Hughes is that she'd been there less than a year. And so she wasn't entitled to Family Medical and Leave Act FMLA, which, by the way, would have given her 12 weeks, but that would have been unpaid, right? That's not mandatory paid. I guess one of the larger questions people are asking about this company, which, by the way, markets itself to moms, right, is baby clothes, is that they only offer two weeks maternity leave to employees who've worked there less than a year. I think it goes to four weeks if she'd been there a year. So at a time in this country where we're talking about, you know, lackluster maternity leave, I think why this uh, story is resonating more is because they're like, wait, how could a company like this that markets itself this way um, offer this sort of leave? At the same time, I totally hear you on like a apology and moving on. At the same time, we also live in an era of cancel culture. And people are like, well, you know, you did something. And so there's a lot of competitors out there and I don't want to reward the culture that you have at your company right now. And it is leading to the larger conversation of the crappy maternity leave situation we have in this country, right? The U.S. is now one of six countries left on earth that does not have a paid federal leave policy for new moms. Six countries on earth, 190 have figured it out. It's us, Tonga, Micronesia, Palau, and Papua New Guinea, I believe. We've left it to companies and states, about 35 states, by the way, have none. Uh, about 14, I believe, in D.C. have some sort of policy they've instituted on their own. So uh, there is a larger conversation now, again, sparked by this, just the latest example of, you know, why is it in 2024, especially in light of overturning Roe v. Wade, etc., that we're talking about maternal health in this country, and yet there's no mandatory policy that enables moms to take some sort of leave in this country. First of all, I would just say this is certainly not the first and won't be the last company that presents itself one way, catering to one group of people, and their behind-the-scenes policies are quite different. So so that's number one. Sure. And, and secondly, let's just take a look at where things do stand right now. There is a bipartisan working group in the House on paid leave. And they have released a modest draft framework aiming to enhance national access to paid family leave. It is still very vague and it doesn't require paid leave. President Biden has been pushing for a 12 week national paid leave policy. Republicans oppose the measure. 14 states and D.C. have implemented some form of their own paid leave program in the meantime. And there is a new poll out that finds overwhelming support for this. 96% of Democrats, 82% of independents, 76% of Republicans, 84% of suburban women support it. Yeah, and we should remind folks that back when Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House just a couple years ago in 2021, Biden tried to push through the 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave as part of the Build Back Better plan. That 12 weeks was whittled down to four weeks and then completely eliminated after pushback from Joe Manchin, the centrist Democrat from West Virginia. So they really needed Manchin because none of the Republicans would support it. And even Manchin was like, well, I think this will cost taxpayers too much and cost businesses too much. So uh, no paid leave. And so that's where things stand um, right now. But given you know this issue continues to resonate, we'll see what comes of it on the campaign trail. Uh, right now, we haven't seen any position taken by uh, former President Trump, who's the likely GOP nominee here on it. Biden continues to push the 12-week plan, but with split rule right now, Republicans controlling the House, it will not happen at least this year. It will not. So right after I had my daughter, Alex, is when that show Working Moms came out on Netflix. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's based in Canada about moms who basically go back to work after having babies. And and it talks about just their struggles and how hard it is. And I'm watching it thinking, 
okay, yeah, but you guys go back to work after like six months. Try doing that <laughs> after, you know, three months or 12 weeks or however long we have here. It, it, you're lucky to get 12 weeks. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't know. Personally, I found going back to work after my daughter to be one of the most difficult things that I've ever done. And if anybody is struggling with it, I always recommend um, Lauren Smith Brody's book, The Fifth Trimester. I actually had her on this podcast when you were on paternity leave. And by the way, paternity leave, just as important as maternity leave, because that is when the dad is bonding with the baby and it takes a, a huge burden off the mom. Yeah, and by the way, more than 100 countries have that in the world. And of course, the U.S. not in that group either. Um, Jill, we should mention, by the way, that Kite Baby has offered uh, Marissa Hughes her position back. Marissa has decided not to take the position. She continues to be with her infant in the NICU right now. Uh, and so she put out a video over the weekend saying, you know, I saw the apology. Uh, I hope they fix the culture there. I'm not returning. And I think one thing that people noted, too, is that the founder in her apology videos would make a point of adopted baby adopt. Like it sounded like she was emphasizing that. So there was a lot of um, women in the adoption community and, and even beyond that who are like, you know, a mom is a mom is a mom here whether you birth a child or not. And so I think, you know, it's um, it's really lit up a, a whole conversation around this and a much needed conversation that was obviously already happening, but at least is getting attention now at a number of media outlets. All right, we'll take a quick break here to thank one of our big sponsors here at Mo News, Athletic Greens, AG1. We're always talking about health trends, food trends here on the podcast. And it's hard to get all your nutrients every day. Uh, we're all busy with work, uh, kids, everything else going on in our lives. One way to get all the important ingredients is Athletic Greens AG1 powder. I first tried it more than a year ago. I was having trouble getting all of my nutrients and vitamins. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy. It's quick. It lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten 75 plus important ingredients, tons of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics to support digestion gut health. And what's great right now is they're offering the Mo News community that with your first purchase of AG1, they're giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit drinkag1.com slash Mo News. This is drinkag, the number one, dot com slash Mo News to take advantage of the offer and to really take ownership of your health. All right, time now for the speed read from the Wall Street Journal. The United States, Egypt and Qatar are pushing Israel and Hamas to join a diplomatic process that would end the war. It would start with a release of hostages and eventually lead to a withdrawal of Israeli forces and an end to the war in Gaza. While mediators say that they believe the two parties are willing to talk about it, Israeli and Hamas leaders both effectively are dismissing any deal. Israeli negotiators have continued to push for a two-week halt to fighting to allow for a hostage-prisoner exchange, and they've been reluctant to discuss plans that envision a permanent ceasefire. That would be similar to a deal that took place in November that led to the release of 100 hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners who were in Israeli jails. However, Hamas wants a permanent end to the war this time. The withdrawal of Israeli forces, which would mean they would stay in power, they would survive and be in charge in Gaza. So that is what they are asking in order to start another round of talks. And then they say they would trade the remaining hostages for thousands of Palestinian prisoners, including Hamas leaders and terrorists who were involved in the October 7th attacks. All of that non-starters for Israel. The mediators have proposed a 90-day plan that would first pause fighting for an unspecified number of days for Hamas to first release all Israeli civilian hostages 
while Israel would release hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, withdraw forces from Gaza's towns and cities, and also ends drone surveillance and double the amount of aid going in. In the second phase, Hamas would free female Israeli soldiers and turn over bodies while Israel would release more Palestinians. A third phase would then involve the release of Israeli soldiers and fighting age men that Hamas considers soldiers, while Israel would redeploy more forces outside of Gaza. There's a very comprehensive plan here, but right now it's a plan that um, Hamas isn't really game for, and the majority of Israel wouldn't support given how long-term it is, and the bottom line being that Hamas essentially survives the war here if this plan was to move forward. It envisions talks for a permanent ceasefire, normalization of relations between Israel and Arab countries like Saudi Arabia, which is definitely something Israel wants. It also relaunches the process of creating a Palestinian state. That last part, much more controversial in Israel coming out of October 7th. Uh, many Israelis feeling that they can't trust a Palestinian independent state right now in the aftermath of that. But the argument from the U.S. and others is, well, what's the alternative here? What is the long-term uh, solution to all of this? There are divisions right now uh, within the Israeli cabinet, the Israeli war cabinet, about uh, what to do about the hostages prioritizing the war over the hostages. A former leader of the Israeli military uh, named Gadi Eisenkot came out slamming Netanyahu over the weekend, saying the prime minister not doing enough here. He's prioritizing his own political survival over the hostages. The belief among a growing group of Israeli leaders is that the only way to get the hostages home is through negotiation, through a deal, not through additional fighting. And that's really the crux of the fight within Israel right now. Some saying, including the prime minister, we need to be able to put uh, Hamas on its heels. And that's the only way that under duress will they give up the Israelis. Others saying, well, November, those exchanges proved that negotiation is the way to bring people home safely. We should note, by the way, that Eisenkot's son, a 25-year-old reservist, was killed in the fighting in Gaza late last year. He, uh, Eisenkot actually lost another member of his family during the war as well. And this also comes, by the way, not just tension within Israel over Netanyahu's uh, strategy here, but also tension between Biden and Netanyahu. They had a phone call late last week. It was the first in nearly a month. Their relationship has been in very dire straits recently. Netanyahu basically pushing back on a lot of things Biden is asking for right now. And the most significant of them is that Biden and the Americans are saying, you have to say that there will be a Palestinian state at some point, it's not realistic. Netanyahu pushing back saying, nope, I just don't believe in that. I don't believe that they should have a state. And that is uh, receiving pushback from the US, receiving pushback from um, allies in Congress who are longtime allies of Israel, who are like, that's just not realistic. The Europeans are pushing back on that. So the White House has had it with Netanyahu. And we should note that within Israel, Netanyahu has probably a 15 to 20% approval rating. Uh, and there's a major assumption that elections will take place after the war. That's why many believe that he's prolonging this war for as long as possible because his war ensures his political survival. So that is the issue uh, many are seeing there. It also comes, you know, as the fact that Netanyahu was prime minister when October 7th happened. So many Israelis are blaming him, but saying, you know, we're at war. We're going to let him take us through the war and then we'll have an election. Many are saying, well, the war is going to continue to keep him in charge. It's also notable that in Israel this past weekend, there were demonstrations in Jerusalem outside of, of Netanyahu's home, where he lives, calling for at least Israel to set a date for new elections. And according to one report that I was listening to, Israelis are conflicted because as, as low as Netanyahu's approval rating is, and despite the desire to see somebody new in charge and the feeling that Israel has lost its way and it's going in the wrong direction, 
a lot of Israelis feel like protesting is somehow maybe betraying their troops that are currently serving. And so there's just a lot of conflicting feelings right now amongst Israelis. Right. They support the troops. And by the way, the war is extremely popular. They just many Israelis disdain the prime minister and don't believe that, you know, he has the right strategy, but they believe in the larger strategy of eliminating Hamas, bring home the hostages, etc. The question is, is who's in charge right now? And uh, and Israelis, by the way, it's a big protest culture there. It's a big, you know, democracy. And so, you know, there were massive protests against Netanyahu before October 7th. That's all quieted down. The country trying to remain unified. But as this war, you know, gets longer and, you know, more Israelis have issues with Netanyahu, you might start to see people in the streets. One other thing I'll note, by the way, there's a Wall Street Journal report uh, that was out over the weekend. Uh, it contained a classified U.S. intelligence estimate that says that Israeli forces have killed anywhere between 20 to 30 percent of Hamas fighters. That is a toll that falls far short of Israel's strategy of destroying the entire group leaves about three quarters of the group, if you believe those numbers. And right now, uh, the belief is that Hamas is trying to reconstitute its police force right now in Gaza City, and that Hamas has enough munitions to continue striking Israel and Israeli forces for a number of months moving forward. Hence, the Israeli government saying it's going to take another year to finish this off. Um, So that would jive with this assessment. And we mentioned uh, we're watching the region over the weekend, two major incidents uh, we're watching. Up in Syria, it appears the Israelis struck at a number of senior Iranian military leaders, uh, members of the IRGC, which runs the various terrorist groups like Hezbollah and communicates with Hamas and the Houthis. They killed uh, several leaders, uh, Iranian leaders in Syria over the weekend, Iran saying they will avenge that attack on Israel. And part of that potentially was an uh, Iranian attack on a U.S. base in Iraq, Over the weekend, it actually left several U.S. personnel being evacuated now for traumatic brain injuries. And that comes as we've seen more than 100 attacks by Iran or Iranian groups on U.S. bases in the region. All right. Switching gears from Fox weather, nearly 90 weather related deaths have been recorded across the U.S. after the country was pummeled by major winter storms for the past week. The deaths include at least 25 people in Tennessee and 16 in Oregon, which remains under a state of emergency following deadly ice storms. Tens of thousands of people also are still without power across wide parts of the country. Icy conditions are expected to continue until the middle of the week. And while the death toll has been greatest in Tennessee and Oregon, there have also been deaths reported in Illinois, Pennsylvania, Mississippi, Washington, Kentucky, Wisconsin, New York, New Jersey, and elsewhere. Yeah, a number of them were traffic fatalities related to the ice and snow conditions. If you can avoid driving in the weather, definitely uh, please do. Uh, Down in Mississippi, they're investigating right now whether online rumors about a potential storm-related water shortage prompted residents to then store water in their bathtubs. That move caused a temporary drop in water pressure and dry faucets for thousands of residents in Jackson, Mississippi. That's the capital down there, which has had a number of water issues. We've talked to you guys about it. They've had major water issues in Mississippi and only reinforced this weekend uh, with that storm. Meanwhile, there are also water issues in Tennessee. That's where 400,000 people remain under a boil water order. Uh, That's due to broken pipes in the Memphis area. A local utility there has fixed several dozen water mains, uh, more than 4,000 water pipes because of the cold temperatures. As you've seen, record cold hit the south in recent winters uh, when they typically never see it. Uh, Their pipes are not necessarily made to freeze. And so you saw this in Texas a couple of years ago. You've seen this in Tennessee now. The concern in Tennessee is uh, it'll be at least a week in that Memphis area before the boil order gets removed. 
From CNBC, Japan became the fifth nation to successfully complete a soft landing on the moon's surface on Friday, joining a select few countries, the U.S., Russia, China, and India, in accomplishing this feat. It successfully landed its unmanned lander on the lunar surface, but it immediately suffered a power glitch that prevented its solar cells from generating the electricity needed to keep it alive. As a result, what is called the Slim Lander, S-L-I-M, was expected to exhaust its batteries within hours of touchdown this weekend, leaving it powerless and unable to receive commands or transmit telemetry and science data back to Earth. Nonetheless, the Japanese join an exclusive group with the moon landing. It comes as moon landings are likely to become more common over the next few years. Globally, more than 100 lunar missions, both by private companies and by governments, are expected to take place by 2030. Jill, it's going to start to look like our uh, favorite Apple show for all mankind. <laughs> Still love that show, Mosh. And it, it is just unbelievable that we've kind of taken such a step back from where we were in terms of our space program. Obviously, so much of this is now in the hands of private companies. But we did land on the moon. That already happened. Yeah, and now yeah like it's 50 big plus <laughs> years ago. So now we're all going back. So the question is right now in the 2020s, why are we all suddenly so eager to get back to the moon? The argument is the moon is a proving ground that humanity needs to get to the moon in order to know how to live in space, how to use resources in space. Um, that's a big thing right now. The riches that are potentially available on the moon and beyond. And of course, if we want to get to Mars and other places. You need to build a base on the moon because otherwise it just it takes a long time to get to these places. Um, there are rare earth metals believed to be on the moon, including an isotope called helium-3 that is very rare on earth, but it's abundant on the moon and theoretically could be used to power nuclear fusion reactors. There's a lot of theories about it, but if you can get the helium-3 from the moon, it could power the earth, the entire earth for centuries, basically be our clean energy solution. So that is a, a real thing here that they're looking at. Uh, the other thing on the moon that you would want is water, because then you could keep human beings on the moon. And there is a belief that there's a lot of water locked up in ice there on the moon. That's why they're particularly looking at the moon's south pole right now as a place to land. Um, and then, of course, you could sustain uh, operations on the moon. And then from there, travel to other parts of outer space. So we talked about the Japanese landing. The U.S. program is a manned program, Artemis. The initial aim, by the way, was to put an astronaut on the moon this year in 2024. There have been delays, budgetary problems, etc. So now the uh, NASA plan for Artemis 2, which goes around the moon with people but doesn't land on the moon, is set for next year, 2025. And then Artemis 3, which was set to take place in 2025 next year and actually put people on the moon again right now is scheduled for 2026. Okay, from NPR, much of the eastern United States can prepare for what entomologists are describing as a once-in-a-200-year event. Entomologists are scientists who study insects, of course. <laughs> um, <it> is <laughs> Jill, no, no, uh, let's be honest. I had to go, I had to go with that. I was like, I think that sounds like they study insects if, it's, if we're on this topic, but just wanted to put it out there. And if you're like me and you've never heard of that type of job or, or type of scientist, uh, join the club. So entomologists say that this is going to be the simultaneous emergence of two cicada broods that will erupt in states from the Midwest to the Southeast from April through June. Periodical cicadas, which have the longest known insect life cycle, spend most of their life underground in an immature nymph form before surfacing from the ground every 13 or 17 years for a brief adult life. 
a brood constitutes multiple species of cicadas that merge on the same cycle. And the last time that two broods, brood 19 and brood 13, emerged simultaneously was in 1803, back when Thomas Jefferson was president. And most after 2024, two broods of cicadas won't sync up their emergences again for another 221 years. We, we tell you guys often you live in unprecedented times. Typically, you didn't think about the insects that come out. But yes, you, you're, living in a, you're living in very special times right now. If you live in the Midwest or the South, you will experience two cicadas at the same time. For a reminder that cicadas are not dangerous. They're not harmful. They're just super, super annoying. They do emit this high-pitched buzz or mating song that can reach 100 decibels. By the way, 100 decibels is the equivalent of a motorcycle or a jackhammer. As someone uh, told me as we were putting it on Instagram over the weekend, Jill, it's going to be so annoying. It's billions of males whining for sex. And that's what it is. <laughs> Just it's, what we it's, need. <laughs> it's, it's a mating call done by the male cicadas looking to mate with female cicadas. By the way, Central Illinois, you are ground central. You are the border between these two cicada broods. So brood 13 cicadas will appear in the Midwest, mainly centered in Illinois, but stretching into Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa. Then brood 19 cicadas will have a much larger geographic area. They include also Illinois because they're centered there as well. Missouri, Louisiana, North Carolina, uh, Maryland, uh, among the states. And so they're going to emerge in big numbers here. Uh, and they're not exactly quiet in their mating frenzy. And by the way, there's different noises that they apparently make. According to these entomologists, there's the calling out for the female cicadas. And then there's the successful like yay cicada call like post. And Ugh. so anyway, between April and June, listen for that in half the country. And then in the aftermath, there will be billions of carcasses on the ground, apparently. Moshe, I will never see a cicada or listen to a cicada the same way ever again. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, wow, they really sound desperate tonight. <laughs> Get a room. <laughs> Get a room, cicadas. Okay, and finally from the New York Post, Gen Z is now trolling millennials for dancing with their hands up, which is hands down the biggest giveaway of their age according to a TikToker. So Mosh, you posted a TikTok about this over the weekend and got some incredible reactions. Gus Rosas, a millennial who goes by Good for the Gooch on TikTok, posted a video about a recent reaction to his dance moves in the club that has gotten millions of views since being posted earlier this month. He says a Gen Z girl recently told him that, quote, you keep putting your hands up and it's giving away your age. He said she kept kind of like making him put his hands down. And that has gotten a lot of fun reaction online. One person writing, we were literally instructed to put our hands in the air like we just don't care. It is our legacy. And Moshe, <laughs> yes. I second that. Yeah, no, there's so many people who are like referencing the various lyrics. We posted a couple of videos. You're like, how will the roof get raised if you don't put your hands up? Or how will I know if I'm a true player if I don't throw my hands in the air? I... <laughs> There's never been a song that told you to put your hands down. So literally, if you think about like every single song, Tayo Cruz, like, you know, all the various millennial hip hop dance hits from the past 25 years, they all tell you to put your hands up, right? From the window to the wall. And so anyway, <laughs> I think it led to a lot of questions uh, and debates being like, what do you want us to do with our hands? And by the way, Gen Z, why are you so embarrassed by everything that we do all the time? Why can't you just let us live? That was my takeaway. Let us live. And especially <laughs> on the dance floor. I and mean, that's like the one place they say dance like nobody is watching. 
why are you judging somebody's dancing? Let us just, it's like the one place that we're just out trying to have a good time, let our hair down, back up. What was the other thing? The middle part, the side part, Jill? Oh, don't get me started. Oh, they, (laughs) yeah, they said that the side part proved that you were too old, that you needed a middle part. And now I'm hearing that if you have ankle socks, that's a sign that you're old. Oh, interesting. There's also the millennial pause on social media videos that we're not as savvy in our online video. So if you, you hear a pause at the beginning of a video clip, that's a sign that a millennial is, talk, is about to talk to you. I've also heard that the dot, dot, dot <laughs> is a sign that you're just over the hill. And I, I wait, love wait, the dot, wait, dot, dot. You mean dot. Using, it, using it in like an email? In anything. So like I would oh, do... Ellipses. Th- that is the correct <laughs> grammatical term for it. I'm just going with dot, dot, dot. <laughs> We're all about proper terms today, Jill. Entomologist, ellipses. We want to be very precise for our listeners. And, and Mosh, for the record, I'm going to keep putting my hands in the air like I just don't care. And a quick sports note, the matchups are set to determine who will be playing in this year's Super Bowl. The Detroit Lions will be playing the 49ers in San Francisco in next week's NFC Championship game. While they had an incredible run in the 80s and 90s, the 49ers haven't won a Super Bowl since 1994. For Detroit, they have now won two playoff games for the first time since 1957, and they are the only NFC team to have never reached a Super Bowl ever. Uh, And now they're one win away. And on the other side, of course, we have the AFC Championship game, which will be played between the Baltimore Ravens and Kansas City Chiefs. It's a big matchup. The Ravens are making their 11th playoff appearance in 16 years under coach John Harbaugh. Incredible performance this year by Lamar Jackson, their quarterback in Baltimore. If Baltimore is able to beat Kansas City next week, it'll be their first Super Bowl game in 12 seasons. Then on the other side, you have the Chiefs who have advanced to their sixth straight AFC title game here. They're aiming for their fourth Super Bowl in just six seasons. Of their uh, most recent three Super Bowls, they've won two of them, including last year. So if they're able to make it to the Super Bowl again, if they can pass Baltimore next week and win again, they would win their second straight championship. As always, we can imagine Taylor Swift will be in the crowd cheering on Travis Kelsey. Nevertheless, both games, the NFC Championship, AFC Championship games, will both be played next Sunday. And then the Super Bowl comes up on February 11th. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We'll actually start with a bit of Super Bowl history on this day. It was during Super Bowl 18, January 2nd, 1984. Audiences saw one of the most iconic Super Bowl commercials of all time. This really gave rise to these incredible ads and making commercials part of the Super Bowl experience. This was Apple's 1984 spot directed by Ridley Scott, of all people. It featured a young woman throwing a sledgehammer through a screen, which a big brother-like figure preaches about the unification of thought. Anyway, it was Apple's big uh, to-do. They still point to this if you ever study ads or advertising as uh, one of the most iconic ones of all time. It got people talking about Apple and a new age of computer technology. All right, on this day in 1973, 51 years ago, Roe v. Wade was decided, the U.S. Supreme Court issuing one of its most momentous decisions, ruling in Roe v. Wade, that a Texas statute criminalizing abortion violated a woman's constitutional right to privacy. Uh, Of course, that was the law of the land for five decades and was just overturned a couple years ago in 2022. All right, on this day in 1981, a month and a half after the shocking assassination of John Lennon, Rolling Stone magazine's John Lennon tribute issue hit newsstands. It featured a cover photograph of a naked Lennon curled up 
uh, with Yoko Ono. This is an iconic photo. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It was shot by Annie Leibovitz, one of the most definitive images of that couple. And we end here with a bit of music history on this day in 1965. You recognize that Tom Jones hit, It's Not Unusual, which, Jill, I can't listen to that without thinking about Carlton on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Of course, the Carlton dance. Of course, the actor's name, Alfonso Ribeiro. And I imagine he gets stopped on the street frequently to do that for people. And something tells me that he's down to do it. Like, I don't I don't get the impression that anybody who's asking him to do it, that he's that he's like rolling his eyes. I think he's all about it. Jill, I feel like that's asking Jaleel White, who played Urkel, to like, you know, ask people like to ask him to be like, did I do that? Did I do that? Maybe he's still game to do that, too. But I feel like you also might get punched in the face if you catch him on a bad day. <laughs> no, I think the Urkel is different. I I. I feel like the Carlton is is like good old fashioned fun. Okay. Um, but I have never run into Alfonso Rivero. I have never asked him to do it. it this is just my hunch. So if anyone has run into him and asked him to do the Carlton, please let us know how it went. <laughs> All right. Uh, two other notes here on this day in 1977, 47 years ago, Rich Girl by Hollow Notes was released, and on this day in 2012. Adele broke the American chart record previously held by the Beatles and Pink Floyd when her second album, 21, hit number one for 16 straight weeks. She named that album 21 because she was 21 years old and she kept doing that. And I remember at the time thinking, there's going to be a point where she's not going to want to do that anymore. We should mention that album, by the way, 21 has rolling in the deep, rumor has it, set fire to the rain, some of the, some of the Adele classics. The best. I mean, it's it's still a great album. Yeah. All right. That was a, a podcast chock full of news. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will have the latest and greatest from New Hampshire. Uh, we have some Mo News coverage on the ground there ahead of that primary. So stay tuned all week on Instagram in addition to this podcast and the newsletter for the latest on the election. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.